Thanks for listening to the Habits and Hustle podcast made possible by your friends at Trunayagen. So I've been a huge fan of Trunayagen for years, and that's why I am so excited to be partnered with them. I literally don't miss a day taking it, and think if you're going to take any supplement, this is the one. And here is why, with of course an added science lesson for you. Our bodies produce a molecule called NAD, which supports energy production that starts in your cells. But the levels sadly decline up to 50% between the ages of 40 and 60. A nutrient that can help increase our NAD is a form of vitamin B3 called nicotinamide riboside, or otherwise known as NR. The most efficient, proven, and safe way to get this is with Trunayagen because it is the best NAD precursor. Trunayagen helps support our bodies against everyday stressors that can damage our cells like overeating, drinking, and staying up too late. In my opinion, no one is too young to take it. I wish I knew about this in my early 30s. It would have been a game changer. What's most amazing is that Trunayagen is backed by over 200 published scientific studies and is researched by the world's top scientific institutions. So go check it out at trunayagen.com. That's T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N. And we have a special offer for new customers to receive 20% off all orders of $100 or more using the code HUSTLE20 until December 31st, 2022. So definitely run, don't walk, to scoop some up today. Hi guys, it's Tony Robbins. You're listening to Habits and Hustle. Crush it. Today on the podcast, we have Rich Roll. Rich's story to me is just just one that is so inspirational. He is someone who truly just tells you that age is only a number. Rich Roll has one of the top health and wellness podcasts in the world. But more than that, he's an ultra endurance athlete, a vegan ultra endurance athlete. But he was an addict and he transformed and, and turned his world around in his mid 40s, becoming the fittest man alive and winning the Ultraman World Championships. He also wrote a New York Times bestseller called Ultraman. What's truly remarkable that less than two years prior to his first Ultraman, he didn't even own a bike, let alone ever race on one. Like I said, he is pure determination and will, and his story is really one that is super inspirational. And, and for people who think that their time is up and that is too late for them. Think again, because Rich is an example that it's never too late. It's mind over matter. Enjoy this podcast. Let me know what your thoughts are. I really enjoyed this conversation. Hope you do too. By the way, that like whole little, you know, segment that we just did before we actually press record was so, I liked it. I thought it was so interesting. <laughs> the podcast before the podcast. The podcast before the podcast. And since you are a big podcaster, how do you not do that? Does that happen to you all the it's time? It's so hard. It, ideally, I would love to have everything set up and then I arrive and sit down without <laughs> having said anything to the guests so it can be totally fresh. But right. it also doesn't feel like uh, welcoming or hospitable no, to do not. that. So <laughs> exactly. I always try to keep the pre conversation on the, on the kind of, you know, surface. simplistic surface level, right. To, and, and the minute, the minute it starts to feel like I'm like, hold that thought, like, let's not, you know, yeah. but you know, sometimes you end up doing it anyway. And then you're like, wow, we should have been recording that. 
Well, right, exactly. <laughs> I always find them that like some of the best conversations or the best pieces of the conversation happen either before or after the podcast. And I'm like, damn, yeah. why don't we just like have the cameras going? But to your point, then it's very, it, it feels very cold and it makes the person not feel very welcome. So you have to kind of guide it, I feel, all the time. Making, that way. making the guest feel w- welcome and comfortable for me is one of the most important things. And it's gotten trickier as the show has gotten larger. And right. now we're in this fancy studio and there's lots of cameras. You have cameras here. Uh, and certain people get a little bit rigid or freaked out by that. Right. Um, and so the challenge is always like getting people to relax. Because my thing when I'm going into an interview is the priority for me is always to try to make an emotional connection with the person. The information that they're there to impart is secondary in the way that I do it to connecting with that person. If I can't connect with them, maybe they'll impart the information, but in my experience, the information won't connect with the audience to the extent that I think is possible unless you can feel like, like the audience has to feel that these two people are like bonding and in sync with each other. Um, So back in the early days when it was just sitting at a kitchen table or I would take my travel kit to somebody's house, they're in their environment, they're safe, there's no camera. It was a lot easier to do that. Uh, it's harder now with, you know, all the fancy stuff and we have lights and all, you know, right, like, right, 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 like right. Kind of, I don't know what your experience has been uh, with with that, but it also depends on the guest. Like some people are very media savvy and they're comfortable and that brings its own challenges trying to get past whatever talking points they exactly. are there to you know talk That's about so true. to get to the real stuff. Sometimes you have to exhaust that. And then there are other people who this might be the first time they've ever done anything like this. And, you know. In those situations, all of the kind of pre stuff before recording, I think is really important, even if you end up talking about stuff that you wish had been recorded. If they feel comfortable and relaxed once we get going, then that I think compensates for what you miss by not recording the kind of like stuff when they arrive. When they arrive. That's actually a very good point. I find that sometimes, and I've, I've said this before, that Sometimes I have had guests on the podcast who are like very, very big, like A-lister people who are so slick in what they say and how they say it. And they're very media savvy, where I find that the podcast becomes very, very bland and vanilla because they're not telling you anything you haven't heard or seen them say a million times Mm -hmm. where I don't even post them. Because it's just beca- you become very much like me too. I did that also. And it doesn't feel connected at all. And then, like I said, like, I feel the people that are usually the most interesting or that give the, have the best experiences or, or this type of thing um, are the people who are a little less savvy with that, right? And mm-hmm. so they don't have the same type of like points that they have to hit and the, you know, the message points and the sound bites. Do you find that as well with that part or? Yeah, I mean, to your first scenario with the media savvy person, then I think, you know, the the responsibility lies on you as the host to create the experience. And in those situations, you have a choice. You can either, this is what I do. I'll I'll interrupt them and throw a curveball at them because you got to get them off that game. Um, And then you get accused of it. Why are you interrupting the guests? But like, you have to interrupt them. Like you're trying to create the best experience for the audience. And if you feel like this is boring or this is something that is a retread of things that people have already heard, you have to interject and you got to like shake them up by 
giving them something unexpected so that it interrupts that yeah. that like pattern. Um, the other strategy is just to allow them to exhaust all of that, like we were talking yeah, about yeah, before, exactly. until they don't have any more talking <laughs> points, and then it gets real. And you can edit out that stuff in the beginning if you think it's boring, you know? So you could do a lot in post. We don't do a lot of editing. I mean, those are rare situations in our case, but you know, occasionally stuff like that happens. And with the less media savvy person, they just need to feel, again, it's about feeling comfortable right. and, care and cared for. And if you, if you can convince them that they're in good hands and you're here to like cast them in their best light, um, I think that that goes a long way. But, you know, listen, when you do, I've done over 700 interviews, they're not all gonna wow. be amazing. You know, like some of them are gonna be, and occasionally someone will come on and it doesn't, it, your responsibility is to the audience, not to the guest. That's right? a, yeah, that's a really and great as point. A, I'm yeah. a people pleaser, so that's a very uncomfortable space for me. And I have to remember that the people that I'm that I'm that I'm indebted to are the people who are taking time out of their day to listen to the show. And on occasion, it's uncomfortable. But if the guest isn't rising to the level of quality that you know I've established for my show and meets the expectations that the typical audience member has kind of you know inured themselves to by being right. a fan of the show then you got to like either edit it down into something that is good or you have to say this one's not good enough to publish who is the most shocking like who was out of the 700 i'm sure you have a lot but give me a couple people that you thought were like really good that you were yeah it's surprised. always it's it's like you know, get this question a lot like yeah. you're choosing your baby yeah i like, know i know you know i i mean Everybody that I invite on is somebody I'm curious about or somebody that it? I admire. Oh yeah, I would never let anyone book the show. Okay, yeah, so yeah. you it's pick all, the people you want. It's all on feel and gut instinct. Like I could be more strategic and, and, and sort of systematic about it, but right. I'm, I'm really not. Like I, it's just somebody I come across and you know, I have a spreadsheet of people that I want, and sometimes it takes a long time before they're in LA because I only do in-person stuff. Right. And I'm willing to wait to make that happen. So that's the first thing, like trusting my instinct. And I've learned over the many years of doing this that that's the most important thing because in the past I've run into situations where a bunch of people, oh, you gotta get this person, they're amazing, they're amazing. And I'm like, well, I don't know, like I'm, I'll look into it, I'm not really feeling it, but like, I don't know, maybe they're right. Like I, you know, and then I'll book that person and it's a flat experience, right. not because the guest isn't worthy or amazing, but I'm not the right person to have that conversation with that person, right? right? And so it's, it has to come from within. But to answer your question, um, you know, for me, the most meaningful experiences that I've had that stand out the most in memory are generally, I mean, it's fun to interview fancy A-list kind of people, that's always exciting, but really the heart for me is when I find somebody who I think is incredible, that's just somebody doing their thing somewhere relatively anonymously, and I can bring them on and like shine a spotlight on them and help, uh, you know, kind of create an audience for some amazing wisdom that they have. Right. And then, you know, they're like, wow, all these people, you know, like that's a really cool thing. And I, and I think the recurring theme that, that, that really resounds for me and for the audience are stories of transformation. Like when you have somebody who, is you know for the most part like an average person who's overcome tremendous obstacles and distinguished themselves somehow in some specific way how they got from that place to the other place is always fascinating and i think that's because we can all see some aspect of ourselves in that and we can um 
reap some level of inspiration or strategies or tactics that are applicable in our own life. And, and that comes through story for me. You can say, these are the five things that you need to do. But again, back to the emotional connection piece, if you can emotionally connect with that individual and see some piece of yourself in them as they tell this story, this hero's journey from point A to point Z, um, those are the stories that, that, that tend to rent long-term space in the memory um, and stand out. So like a perfect example of that would be a guy called Josh Lajani, who's a guy just randomly stumbled across on the internet who'd lost like 350 pounds living in Southern Louisiana in the bayou and like not New Orleans, wow. but like in a very remote township um, without any kind of mentors or role models in his community decided that he didn't want to you know, live this way anymore and took it upon himself to make all of these changes and change his diet and became a marathon runner and ultimately an ultra marathon runner and actually won like an ultra race. And he went from looking like Chris Farley to Bradley Cooper. It's unbelievable. And you know, I was the first person who showed interest in that story and was able to share that story with a lot of people, which inspired him right. to continue like he manages trailer park homes and drains sewers. Like he has a very blue collar kind of like life. But then he, you know, continued to like really, you know, develop this trajectory that he was on and ultimately ended up like on the cover of Runner's World magazine and has been on Good Morning America. And like, that's cool. Cause like I saw yeah. him early and I was like, you need to, and uh, you know, being able to continually like encourage him would be an example. Another one would be. When was that, by the way? Uh, I mean, early, I've had him on. I had him on really early on, like probably nine years ago. Oh at wow! This point. Wow! Um, and he's been on a couple times. Uh, another one was a guy called John McAvoy, who has some renown in in Great Britain, but uh, not in the United States. And he's a guy who grew up in a notorious. It's a long story, but essentially, he grew up in a notorious. South London crime family and was reared from a very young age to become a bank robber, an armed robber, which is like something he, sh like it's sort of a Goodfellas story. Like he, as a kid, he started scouting heists and then, you know, with his uncle and all the, the family members who were all like, you know, doing That's so out there, crazy. like, you know, looting and pillaging. And uh, it's a long story, but ultimately gets pinched and ends up in, uh, in Balmore prison, which is super hardcore. And he was in like the high security uh, wing with Abu Hamza and like all these unbelievable, you know, like terrorists wow. and all that kind of stuff. And he was serving a double life sentence. And I don't want to belabor the story, but essentially- You're not belaboring, it's actually very up, interesting. He ends up um, falling in love with the rowing machine in the gym and realized that if they if he was raising money for charities, they would give him unlimited time on this rowing machine. And in short shrift, he ends up breaking British and world records on the indoor rowing machine from prison serving a life sentence. Oh, so he my realized God, he had this story. capacity as an athlete that he didn't know that he had, ultimately gets paroled, tells the, the parole officer says, or uh, yeah, whoever was like lording over the decision as to wh whether to let him out on parole, said, if we let you out, what are you gonna do? Like, what's, what are you gonna, how are you gonna pursue a living? And he said, I'm gonna become a professional athlete. <laughs> the parole officer said, I've been doing this for like 20 years or whatever. Nobody has ever said that, you know? And they end up letting him out. And he goes to the, the rowing club on the Thames outside London where all these fancy rowing people were. And they put him in a boat. And he realizes that 
Um, even though he had this unbelievable engine, he couldn't translate it in an actual boat. Like it's the kind of thing, kind of like swimming, like you yeah. have to be doing it for a long time as a kid to have that special feel and all of that. So he decided, well, I'll just, I'll go into triathlon and he becomes an Ironman athlete and the only Nike sponsored Ironman athlete and has distinguished himself and then becomes this incredible advocate for prison reform in the UK and has like testified at 10 Downing Street and has all these nonprofits now. And he's become this amazing human being. And like just getting oh him to, God. I mean, the way he tells the story, you're like, this is a movie. And now they're, they are making a movie on this guy's life. So being able to tell that, like those stories I love the most. Yeah. You know, and being, being able to say, you've never heard of this guy, but get ready. He's going to make your hair stand, stand on end and like just let them loose. And um, that's always like a really cool thing. So that's those would be two that stand out. There's many more, but you know, those are my favorites. And you found this guy just like scrolling the internet. Well, there was media like, on him in, like the, in the UK, bit, yeah. you know? So, I mean, he's gotten more well-known over there. And again, this was one I did very early on. I was recently in London. So I sat down with him again. I'm putting that one up soon, um, to kind of catch up on where he is now. But you know, those kind of stories like hold a, hold a special place in my heart. Oh my God, for sure. And they're, they're so inspirational for for an everyday person. Cause mm -hmm. not like that just goes to show you people are not at that one anyway. Like you don't know what you don't know. He never even tried rowing until he was in jail. Mm -hmm. Like who would have thought that he would have been this like master athlete. Right. And to be in such a hopeless state such and still, state. still find a path forward to still be able to hold on to hope to still, you know, to still, you know, figure out a way to have agency in your life, yeah. no matter your circumstances, I think is a really powerful idea. Absolutely. Did you ever think, cause like your, your resume is, I think just, well, not just me, that it's, so, it's so, it's, so, it's, it's big and it's very, mm. it's so vast. Did you ever think that you would become given from where you were to what you are doing now, this very well-known excellent podcaster <laughs> no. that's like i feel like did the, this is like probably not what you ever expected in your trajectory of your life ever no i mean it completely unpredictable in any way i mean i i started um i started my show 10 years ago so i wasn't the first like joe rogan was right. doing his thing and adam carroll like a lot of comedians yeah. you know but it yeah, was a, a time lot of comedians you're right a time before um, it was a time before the iPhone. And so if you wanted to listen to a podcast, you had to download it on your desktop off iTunes and you had to bounce it to like an iPod, like you had to work for it, right? right? It was not a seamless technology. And I fell in love with podcasting when I was training for these crazy ultra races because I would have to go out on my bike for like eight hours. Um, and I can't listen to music, but I needed something to like distract me from, you know, just the, the discomfort and Why all of that. Why can't you listen to music? Are you not allowed? Just, or? no, I could, but I was like eight hours, you <laughs> know, like, music, yeah, no, exactly, you know, yeah. it was like, I need something to like occupy my mind. Right. And I fell in love with podcasting. I was the only person that I knew that actually listened to podcasts, but I was like, this is unbelievable. Like I'm learning so much and I'm hearing stories from all these crazy people. Why isn't everybody doing this? Nobody yeah. was really. Um, but it was clear to me like that this was something special. And so before I started a podcast, I'd listened to thousands and thousands of hours of podcasting. So I had a sense of what the medium, you know, was. And at that time, as I said, it was mostly populated by comedians. 
there wasn't anything really all that unique or interesting happening in like health and wellness and fitness and stuff like that. So after my book, Finding Ultra came out in 2012, I was started thinking about like, well, what do I want to do now? Or what's the next creative expression? And just on a whim, I was like, well, I, I could try this podcasting thing. I know some cool people, like, let's just see. And my wife and I sat down and did one. And I was like, that was fun. Let's do it tomorrow. Like, that was it. Like, there was no, you couldn't make a living doing right, it. You couldn't, right, like, right. It was, nobody was making money doing it. Like, um, so I was just doing it purely for the joy of it and for the fun. And because it wasn't competitive either, people weren't clamoring to start podcasts. Nobody right. was getting into it. <laughs> like, even though we barely had any downloads or listeners, it still like went to like number one in health and fitness. And so that was encouragement. It was like, oh, wow. Like, look, there's my <laughs> show, like right on the iTunes thing right, right there. Right. Like, this is cool. Like, let's just keep doing it. And so it really just grew out of an organic love for doing for the doing of it. Um, and then the technology got seamless and, um, you know, more and more people started listening. And but I, I would have never predicted that it would that it would be like the thing it is today. I mean, right. it wasn't cool to like have a podcast in right. 2012. And now everybody and their dog so, literally has a podcast. It's like mm -hmm. very, very it's becoming crowded. But then they say it's not really crowded because it hasn't even started. Whatever that I means. think it's still early days. You think so too? I think that, um, yeah, although you, you know, there's however many millions of podcasts, most of those are like podcasts that people have abandoned. Yeah, you know, I don't know that's how many true. active ones there actually are because people, start people get into it and then they realize it's a lot of work. And, it's so you know, much and, work. And, 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 you know, it's difficult to do it sustainably over the long haul. Totally. You know? And I've had to learn that the hard I've come close to burning out a couple of times. So, you know, I've now figured out, you know, how to do it and maintain that love for it. Because if I'm not loving it, it's not going to be a good experience right. for the audience anyway. Well, how many do you do a month or a week or what is your schedule? We publish six a month, so every Monday and every other Thursday. Okay. Uh, and I probably, I try to average recording two a week. Um, that's kind of like the typical thing. And you actually do all the prep and, and yeah. all this stuff. I only ask that. Mm. Me too. But I'm just wondering because a lot of people just like show up and they're like just wing it. And then it's kind of like you can tell the difference. Mm -hmm. So I'm figuring, I'm trying to figure out navigating what really, what what you think is like your secret sauce of what makes yours so, is it because you're coming from a, the right place? If the intentions are properly there, it's like what you're naturally interested in with the guests, you make them feel comfortable. Like I think it's a combination of all of those things. I think you have to do you. Yeah. You, know? you have to know what your strengths are and what your interests are. Um, there's no right or wrong way. I mean, Larry King famously like yeah. never prepared for any of his interviews and he's amazing. He's great. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm it's not true. Larry King and <laughs> I'm an obsessive compulsive, like very <laughs> driven perfectionist type personality, which has its pluses and big minuses. Um, so for me, like preparation is huge. Like if they're coming on because they have a book out, I'm going to read the book. Yeah. You know, if they, you know, I, I put probably eight to 10 hours into every guest before they sit down, but I don't prepare questions. I just try to familiarize myself as much as possible. And I'll create an outline that has ideas or topic headings or um, just subject matter that I wanna go into. And I review the outline many times over. And then I don't look at it like during, then I show up and just try to be as present as possible for the experience and just trust in the preparation. Well, okay, so let me, so I haven't even opened my little thing mm. with you, but it's uh, your background was 
like I know that we got introduced because of Darren, but mm. I was very familiar with you because I think your background's like sick. Because you're not like you're also uh, the fact that you became an endurance athlete at forty plus is incredible to me, which I want to talk about. But you were also before that you went to law school. You were you had you had like uh, addiction problems. Mm-hmm. Like your life wasn't what it is now at all. In fact, it's funny though when you get when you Google you when I you know like rich roll. Yeah. <laughs> For whatever reason, vegan is, a, is the first thing that comes up that you're a vegan. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that you're in a song called Rich Roll. There's a song called Rich Roll. Or I like, didn't write that. Nipsey no, no, Hussle. I know. That, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. Right. Was that about you, though? What's was that? that like no, the, no, no. Was it just a quiz? It's kind of like how the Rich Roll, you know? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. Like, I'm like, maybe he was a fan. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> no, no, no. I wish. That would have been cool. That would be really no, cool. not the case. But do people ask you about that? Because I feel like that's like came up so many times when yeah. I was like Well, Googling it's like it. in the Twitter feed. It's yes. like. It's, you know, it get, it gets like, my name gets thrown in with like stuff about Nipsey Hussle yeah. and that song all the time. <laughs> because that, that term rich role is, you know, has a meaning that is, has nothing to do with my right, name, which right, is right, like right. about how like rich people conduct themselves in the world. Right, right, right. Yeah. And then, and, and your name is rich mm. role, which is kind of funny. But, um, so can we just talk about how you went from, uh, you were a swimmer and you were, you were like a college athlete, right? Mm -hmm. You went to Stanford, then you went to Cornell for law school, correct? Mm -hmm. And you were not this healthy person that I'm seeing here. You were totally different. And then was it like when you were 30 or something, you were going up a pair, like a flight of stairs and. Yeah. So what, so yeah, I grew up as a swimmer. Um, I was a very, you know, kind of insecure, awkward, uh, kind of sensitive kid. I had trouble making friends. I was not a natural athlete. Anything with a ball or eye hand coordination, like I'm a disaster. I you got bullied. I tried to play basketball. I got bullied. You know, like, <laughs> you know, I had an eye patch and headgear, like not a vision for you in any way, shape, or really? form. But but I started swimming at a very young age. And that was the one thing that I kind of enjoyed and was actually good at. Like I showed some promise. And when you're young, like you're gonna gravitate towards the things that you right. feel like, you know, you have some opportunity in. And that was swimming for me. And I did it for fun for years and summer league stuff. I grew up on the East Coast, Washington, D.C. area. Um, But then around like 14 or 15, when like the bullying and all the insecurity got really bad, I was like, I'm going all in on swimming. And underwater, like it was like, it's like my safe space. You know, it's like you feel like you're in your mother's womb. It feels protected and away from, you know, all the noise and the confusion of what it means to be a teenager and all of that. Um, and I started doing like club swimming, you know, morning workouts, 445 every morning, you know, hour and a half before school, two hours after school, uh, and realized quickly, like I was on a team that had some of the best swimmers in the country, high school swimmers, like very competitive program and realized quickly that although I was good, I wasn't like the best. I wasn't the most talented. There were a lot of kids who were a lot better than me. Um, but I realized pretty quickly that if I put in extra work, I, I could like bridge that talent deficit gap. And I became like a workhorse, like the one who would do stuff other people wouldn't do. You know, I was always the first one to morning practice. I was more reliable than my coach. He gave me a key to the pool. Like, and I would grind, like I was a grinder, you know? And so by the time I was a senior in high school, I was one, you know, one of the top swimmers in my area and was getting recruited <laughs> by all the colleges and all of that. 
and and ended up at Stanford, which was the number one collegiate swimming program in the country at the time. I got into a whole bunch of Ivy League schools. I got into Harvard and Princeton and and really thought the the, the mental calculus for me was these are all great schools. I can go to and so the the differentiator for me was really swimming because that was what I was most passionate about. And it was a it was a function of whether or not I wanted to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond. And I just thought I'll never know what my potential is unless I put myself in that scary situation and see what I'm capable of. So I go to Stanford, the world record holder in my event was on the team, you know, Olympic gold medalists and American record holders and all that kind of stuff. And, and ultimately, uh, you know, I, I just, I love being part of that team. It was, it's just, you know, it was an extraordinary, I was a pinch me. I was like, I can't even believe like I get to go here and I get to show up at the pool every day and swim with these guys. But ultimately two things happened. One was not the right program for me because it was really catered towards, um, you know, those ultra elite athletes. And so I was doing workouts that weren't really, um, customized for, 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 you know, optimizing my potential. And then the second thing was that, you know, I was introduced to alcohol and then, that is a whole other story, but that really threw me off my trajectory to say the least. How is that and, possible? Uh, how did you get introduced to alcohol? Not to interrupt you, but how did that happen while you're in this like elite, like this top school for swimming? I mean, like college, some kid, college did, in the eighties. I so mean, it was come more, on. So it was more like a college swimmers experience. Swimmers are work hard, play hard, you know? Oh, I know. I know work a lot really of hard. And then, you know, and it's all about the pride of being able to do it all. Um, but you know, the, the, the first real experience I had with alcohol, it's actually kind of a cool story. I was on a recruiting trip to the university of Michigan. Um, and my grandfather had been the captain of the university of Michigan swim team in like 1929, American record holder and almost made the Olympics. Like it's a whole, and he died before I was born, wow, yeah. died when my mom was in college from, from a heart attack. Anyway, uh, I was on a recruiting trip to the University of Michigan, and they had a, they have a great swim program. I love the coach there. And there was a dual meet, and then there was a party that night, and I was at this house party, and there was a keg, and all the swimmers, and divers, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and a guy, you know, gave me a beer, and the guy who gave me the beer is a guy called Bruce Kimball, whose dad was the diving coach at University of Michigan, Dick Kimball. And Bruce, other than Greg Luganis, was the number was like the best diver in America. And wow. you know, has there's a whole story there. But um he hands me his beer and he's holding uh he's holding his his own beer from, you know, just like keg beer. And he and he 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 bends down, he bends his knees, and he proceeds to launch into a backflip and he and he sticks the landing, lands perfectly and did not spill the beer. And I, I was like, that's the greatest party trick I've ever seen. Wow. Whatever that guy has, like I want it and just partied, you know, that night, had an amazing time. But for me, uh, and and so, but the, 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 sort of, the sort of punctuation of that story is that um, Bruce Kimball ended up uh, drunk driving, careening into a crowd of people and like killing one person or two people. I can't remember, went to jail. His, you know, his athletic career was over. Uh, he had another uh, driving accident where his face got bashed in. Like, and then, you know, was a really terrible alcoholic and has since gotten sober and the like, but like suffered, you know, quite some tragic circumstances as a result of his drinking. And in certain ways, like, 
you know, to add a little literary flair to yeah. it, it was sort of a foreshadowing of what would come with me. But, you know, for me, I knew deep down, almost on an unconscious, like DNA level, that alcohol did something different for me than it did to everybody else. Because that first time I got drunk just felt like the answer to every problem I didn't know I had, like this warm blanket that was enveloping, enveloping me and just making me feel comfortable in my own skin for the first time. I was like, oh, this is how normal people feel. Like, I want to feel like this all the time. And suddenly I was able to, you know, look a girl in the eye and talk to her or just, you know, feel like what I thought it felt like to be a normal person who kind of had a rule book for life. And so as a result of that, I started chasing that more and more. And there was a slow denigration of everything aspirational in my life, like all the goals that I set for myself, all the things that I had imagined for my life didn't disappear, but they became secondary to chasing the next good time. And so if you have any familiarity with alcoholics or alcoholism in general, it's a progressive disease. And so I was able to manage it for many years, but my life kind of inch by inch became a little bit more and more out of control every subsequent year until at the end I was a pretty broken individual. So when you were like, so did swimming not give you confidence though, just because you became really good? Maybe you were not, were you, did you make it to like, I know you didn't try for the Olympics, mm -hmm. but you said your team was very much that way. You probably were like one level, maybe not like one notch below. That did not give you any like self-confidence yeah, or self-esteem? Yeah, I self -esteem. mean, it was, it was great to go from the high school that I went to where I was sort of persona non grata to going to Stanford and being on the swim team. And yeah. you feel like, oh, like people respect the swimmers here in California versus, you know, it was, there was something about that, but I had such a deep um, seated insecurity and, and low regard for myself mm -hmm. that alcohol soothed that no external validation could Ever solve help. for me. Yeah, and I think that's part of it. And just, you know, I mean, people are always like, why do you think you became an alcoholic? I mean, you can kind of probe that question forever. I don't spend a lot of time doing that because it doesn't really uh, provide you. me any solutions for how to live now. Um, but yeah, you know, I think the other thing that's important to recognize is that uh, it worked for me for a long, it gave me the confidence that I was seeking, like not an earned confidence, a false confidence, but a confidence nonetheless that, that, that taught me how to be kind of a social animal because I was so awkward. It made me feel like I wasn't awkward anymore until I could suddenly kind of embody that, that person. Um, and that's why people use drugs and alcohol. At least that's why I did, you know, like you use them because they work, right? right exactly. Ultimately, they stop working and your life goes haywire, which is what happened to me. Um, but it's hard to tell that person in the early phases of that condition that they should stop doing what they're doing because it is functioning for them. But how did it go haywire? I mean, you were functioning. Were you st still able to swim for many years that way? With yeah, I mean, when, listen, when you're young, you can get away with a lot. Like I could party, you know, and it's like I could party till two and still make morning workout and be fine and get good grades and all of that. Right, and you college. Go, you have this like you're, there's an ego that goes with that. Right. Um, but, you know, slowly it's like I swam well my freshman year. I never swam well again. And I didn't end up swimming my senior year. I quit the team. Like, and I never felt like I, I achieved my potential as an athlete. I robbed myself of that in many ways. Grades weren't that important. They start to slip. Who cares? 
I'm at Stanford, everything will be fine. Somehow I squeak into law school. I don't know how I got through law school because at that time I'm like, you went you know, to Cornell to too. Like, it, it wasn't like you went to some like, you know, Schmadre school across the street here. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, how did you just, get in? I, I was the last person admitted to that class. I was on the wait list. It's a longer story, but I got a call from them literally like two days before class started and said, we have a spot for you, but you got to tell us like right now. <laughs> I was living in New York City at the time uh, and ended up saying, okay, and then figuring out where Ithaca, New York was and driving up there without wow. an apartment and everybody had been preparing for law school all summer with this reading list. And I was like, I was in New York two days ago, like doing something totally different. And right. now I'm like in this, you know, it happened very quickly. And I often think what would have happened if I had not gotten in or decided to do something else. But yeah, I mean, what would I, you have done if I, you didn't get in? What would you have I done? I was like, I was like working on film sets as a PA and, you know, really? I had worked in a law firm for a while when I lived in New York City. Mainly I was partying because Manhattan in yes. like the late 1980s. I mean, it's a good time. Totally. So whatever job I could find to like service that would have been fine with me. But then you finished law school. And you worked at Scadden Arps, which is like one of the top firms in like. Well, I was a the paralegal world. there when I was in New York City, so I didn't get. I wasn't a lawyer at Scadden. Oh, you weren't a lawyer. I graduated okay. Cornell, and then i i went to I went to San Francisco, and I was a lawyer at an employment law firm there called Littler Mendelssohn for a couple of years. Is that like a good law firm? It's like the if you want it, if you're into employment law, yeah, like it's <laughs> you're into employment yeah, law. Okay, yeah. but my point is, you were still drinking this entire time. Yeah, and the drinking was getting more and more excessive, and with that comes the shame because you know you're out of control, but you're trying to hide it. Um, you're trying to pretend like everything is cool. And so you start living d this double life existence, the life that you live during the day when you are wearing this mask and you're being this professional person. And then the life that you're living when you go home and no one's watching and you can like let your freak flag fly <laughs> and you know do all this crazy shit that you feel compelled to do, but privately you would never admit to anyone that you were actually doing. Were you drinking before you went to work? At the end, it got it got bad. Yeah, at the end, that was after I ended up uh, like having a marriage that went sideways, and I was I was living in L.A. at this point and working for a law firm in Century City, like right across the street here, and uh, and then the drinking, yeah, the morning drinking started, the vodka tonic in the shower and the tall boy between my legs as I drove to work and. Wow sneaking out during the day and like i mean that's just a ticking time bomb you know and it all blew up ultimately when i ended up getting like two duis in a row like within a like a six week period um here in la and after living in san francisco and drunk driving quite a bit uh which is hard to admit but i did a lot of it uh you realize living down here that the cops don't fuck around like if they pull you over they just assume you're a coke dealer or a crack addict and you've got a shotgun under the seat and all of that and they treat you accordingly. So I was facing jail time for having two DUIs, like it was a dire situation. And that really brought me to my knees, but then I had this marriage go sideways and there was all kind. I mean, essentially it's a long story and it's a very kind of um, typical alcoholic story like my story isn't any crazier than you know most alcoholics uh but you know the house of cards that was my life had you know sort of toppled on top of me and there was nothing like i mean i have some crazy stories but mostly it's just sad and pathetic and and lonely and at the end i was you know worried about going to jail worried about getting fired from my job 
Um, you still maintained a job. It's yeah, but it was coming. It was getting close to like the second time I got a DUI, the cop who arrested me took my wallet, looked at my business card and realized that the firm that I worked for was the same firm that represented the Beverly Hills Police Department. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the God. boss, my boss, the lawyer that I was working for was handling a lot of litigation for the LAPD and the Beverly Hills Police Department. And this particular cop knew my boss. So my boss got a phone call and knew what had happened to me. So he was totally briefed on like what oh was going on. And I was like, I was gonna, you know, that's a whole other story, but ultimately like, you know, my oh. my my time as a lawyer was coming to an end <laughs> at this firm. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, I was sleeping on a bare mattress on the floor of a shitty apartment with no furniture in it. My family told me like, we love you, but we cannot, stand by and watch you do this anymore. And we don't really want to have anything to do with you. And until or unless you're ready to actually, you know, get into the solution of this problem. So your family already was intervening. Oh, oh big time. They were like, we're done. And, you know, is that what my friends had fallen or? away and I, I purposely was isolating. Yeah. Like I didn't want to call anyone. And so the people I was hanging out with were, you know, what they call the lower companions. Yeah. And it was just getting darker a and lower companion? And Is that a real term? Yeah, lower. In the parlance of recovery, yeah, lower companion. That's what the, they call them? Yeah, the lower companions. Wow, okay. Or just drinking alone, you know? Right, but you got to find people that meet you where you are, I exactly. guess, and that's what that is. Yeah, exactly. Is that why your engagement, you said, you still had a girlfriend or a fiance or something I was, at this point. yeah, so. Was she I an was, alcoholic too, though? No, 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 you know, no. And that whole thing, I got married and then the marriage, the, that it ended on the honeymoon and that was the last time I've ever seen her. It's <laughs> like, it's crazy, you know, like, it's just like. That was the last time you <laughs> ever saw each other? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Is she where is she now? Is she married or she lives in the Bay Area and is married and has kids and I'm happy for her. Wow. Yeah. But you were still able to like keep it together by a by a thread, it seems, but very Yeah, but that thread was, was getting was, frayed and yeah, it was all I mean, you know, everybody has their bottom and you know uh, the, What was your the, bottom bottom? Well, I think my the, emotional bottom was when that marriage ended on the honeymoon and it was the most like psychic and emotional pain I could ever imagine because my whole, everybody I cared about in my world had been at this wedding and everyone thought that we were married and I had to go home and like tell oh, people wow. and face the fact that this thing had like exploded in my face, which was deeply, you know, embarrassing mm -hmm. and shameful. Um, and it was so painful that I, it wasn't like, oh, I need to get sober. It was, oh, I, I need to drink more now to, Cause I can't, like, it's so painful. I can't even get up out of bed in the right. morning. So I had to do that for a while until finally, you know, I was ready to do something different. And, you know, sobriety isn't for people that need it. It's for people that want it. It's really all about willingness. And, you know, that kind of line in the sand moment is visited upon people, uh, you know, at different stages. It's like the elevator's going down, as they say, it doesn't have to hit the ground floor. Like you can get off it at any time and it will eventually hit the ground floor. And it's really like, how much pain are you willing to tolerate before you're ready to change something? And I think for me, at least, the, um, the pain of my situation had to exceed the fear of doing something different or letting go of this way of living because it's really insane when you think about it. Like when you tell an alcoholic, like you can, you can keep doing this and drinking and here's what's going to happen. You're going to, there's only three places you're going to go like a jail, an institution, or you're going to die, or you can give this up and you have 
that you can you can go on this journey over here of you know of joy and love and respect and all of that and the alcoholic will say I need to get back to you on that. You know? Isn't that so crazy? <laughs> Which is the insanity of alcoholism yeah. and drug addiction, right? It's so powerful and baffling. And pervasive. Um, and I, I just, I thank God every day that I had that moment and had the willingness to like raise my hand and, and, and you know, get well. Did you go to rehab? What was your first So thing? yeah, I was 31 and I ended up going to a treatment center in, in Oregon. Um, thinking I'd just be there for like the 28 day spin dry. Um, but when I got there and started um, being honest with people about how I was living and what I was actually doing, the counselors were like, yeah, we think you should stick around for a while. You know, maybe you should you really? know, like let go of when it is you think you're going to leave and just like invest in this. And I was so broken. I really was willing. I was like, I'll do anything you tell me to do. Like I will, because the dawning epiphany was me being disabused of this idea that I was in control or that my intelligence was driving me in a, in a healthy direction for me. Like, oh, I'm this smart guy when these schools and job and all that kind of stuff and yeah. the shuck and jive with that. But the truth that really landed on me like a ton of bricks was like, yeah, you think you're such a smart guy, your best thinking got you here in this mental institution. Like, how smart are you now, right? And I was like, I don't know anything. Just like, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Uh, and that, I think, is why I was able to really kind of get well and embrace sobriety and, and create a long-term foundation of sobriety. But like, I, I was in that treatment center for 100 days. And then when I got out, came back to LA and really made sobriety my number one priority. And like, yeah, I went back to my job, but was really the like, same job with the Beverly yeah, Hills. Yeah, I was like, yeah. they, they like, you know, so that boss, that boss, right, who knew what was going on, I was like, I need to go to treatment. And they supported me to do that. And so even though during that tenure in, in rehab, I realized like, this job is not for me. Like, you know, I was like this square peg trying to jam into it a round hole the whole time. But they had been so supportive. I was like, I need to go back and work there for at least as long as I was gone. And I think I ended up working there for like a year after that, knowing like ultimately I got to find something else to do. But but really like sobriety was my job, like just, you know, meet, you know, at least a meeting a day, if not two, like step work sponsor, like all of like the whole AA thing, like was that was my job. Did you relapse ever? I relapsed. So that was 1998. 13 years into sobriety, I had a one-day relapse. So now I guess I'm coming up on 11 years from that day. So that one day? Yeah. It's a really stupid, like, lame, pathetic relapse. Oh, what like, happened? I mean, so I was at I was at Ultraman uh, in Hawaii, which is this double Ironman race that I had raced a couple times. I've got so yeah, many yeah, questions yeah. for you. No so idea. I was there for the third time, and I had trained an entire year and I was so crazy fit. I was like the most fit I had ever been. Is that and when I was you won there to, the I was, thing? No, in 2009, I did, I did well. Okay. Um, I got sixth that year and I was the fastest American. And then the year after that, I did Epic Five where I did these five Ironmans on five Hawaiian Islands. I have And then 2011, I went back to Ultraman and I was like, I'm here to win. And I literally put all my eggs in that basket for an entire year training for that race. And ended up DNFing, pulling out with a respiratory condition like i was coughing up blood on the second day and dnf is what did not finish did not finish yeah uh 
And it was devastating to me, like, because I was so intent on performing at this race and I'd put so much into it. And things just, that, I mean, it happens when you're an athlete, like things don't always go your way. Uh, and in this case, they went terribly awry. And I just, you know, I, what, I didn't feel myself. I, I knew- But how did it happen? What happened? I think I was so lean, like in, in endurance, it's all about like power to weight ratio. And I, I got really lean. Like, I think I was 158 uh, pounds. I'm probably like 178 right now. It's like 20 so pounds. So super oh, lean. My God. And I was like crazy fit. Like I could go all day without getting tired. Like, I, and, and, and uh, I think because I was at such a razor's edge of fitness, like you're sort of immune compromised. This, this happens to a lot of athletes too. Like, they go to the Olympics and like suddenly they get like a sore throat or something like that because you're like literally like, you know. On the edge. Yeah, on the on the very edge. And I just pushed it too far. And during that period of time, although I'd never questioned whether or not I was an alcoholic, I'd really made this race and my athletic trajectory like my higher power. Like I, I put, I, I made that the number one priority in my life over my spiritual life and that, you know, kind of detached me from a lot of the tools that got me sober and kept me sober. So I think I was vulnerable and that relapse was sort of just, you know, waiting in the shadows for an opportunity. And in the days after that experience, I was with my family in Hawaii, found myself at a, you know, beach bar and the family was down the beach and I was like, I'm gonna have a beer, you know? And then like, they're still down there. I think I, I drank four beers in like 15 minutes and then, my daughter, who was like, I don't know, maybe 10 at the time, came up and she's like, you don't look right, what's going on? And I was like, I'm busted. And I knew immediately like, oh, I can't hide that I'm like kind of drunk right now and just went to a meeting that night. So luckily, like a lot of people who go out, like it's really hard to come back. And there's a lot of shame with that too, yeah. because it's all a lot of, a lot of you know, A is about time, how much time do you have? Um, and so that was really embarrassing and, and kind of an awful experience to confront the fact that like after so many years and thousands and thousands of AA meetings that I would make that choice. Wow. But I think in retrospect, it ultimately made my sobriety much stronger because I had gotten to the point uh, as somebody who had 13 years at the time, you kind of, you're like, yeah, I got this figured out. Like, I know what's going on. I don't really need to like do all this He's the step work stuff and I don't have to call my sponsor. Like I already know what he's going to tell me. Like I'll just, you know, I can like everything's static. Like I'm in a good place and that's an illusion. And, and that's also um, being driven by your ego and your self will, which are antithetical to sobriety, which is premised on humility and, you know, a will beyond your own of your choosing and the like. Uh, and I had like lost touch with that. And so I got right sized and that heavy dose of humble pie has allowed me to return to the program and, and really kind of in, in embrace not only how powerful alcoholism is, because like, holy shit, like after all these years, and I was right back there, you know, like I was, they say like your addiction is doing push-ups in the dark all along. Right. And it was like, holy shit, that is so true. And it was scary that I could make that choice after all that I had done to avoid that happening. Um, and so now, like, I just don't, you know, I never take it for granted. And I'm very aware that, like, it isn't static. And every, 
this applies beyond addiction to, to, I think, you know, anybody who's trying to better themselves that, you know, every, every thought that you entertain, every word that comes out of your mouth, every interaction with another human being, every decision that you make is either moving you towards sobriety or supplant that with like the aspirational version of yourself or you're regressing it's moving you away from the idealized person of your aspirations and the more you can kind of be present with that idea i think it makes you a lot more conscious of the choices that you're making because they seem oh who cares if we gossip about that person what's the big deal but is that something my aspirational self would do Mm -hmm. like probably not seems harmless but if you really think like, oh, we're on this spectrum, we're moving along this spectrum all the time, um, it allows me, it's a, like a reminder, like, oh, those little things matter because all the good things that I've achieved in my life, you know, are because of tiny little things that I've done, you know, with extreme consistency. Like it really is about the little things. The little things are the big things. Wow. That's amazing. I had, that's that's crazy. I had no idea that you relapsed mm. like right after the. Well, what's, what was even more humiliating about it was that I had just turned in the manuscript for Finding Ultra. And a big part of Finding Ultra is like this journey to sobriety. And I was like, you're a fucking fraud. Like you have this book that's going to come out. I couldn't make changes in it anymore. <laughs> it had like gone to the printer. And I was like, you just relapsed. And, you know, in six or seven months, this book is going to come out. Like, and so. I mean, that was like, wow, right? Like, just when you think you're the shit, yeah. let me remind you that you're a worker among workers. And it was so humbling. I mean, my sober community knew right away. I mean, I called like guys right away. This is what happened and tears and the whole thing. But I didn't talk about it publicly for quite a while because I was like, if I talk about this when this book is coming out, you know, I was like, yeah. I was really afraid, you know, until ultimately like when I had the podcast, at the appropriate time when I felt comfortable talking about it, I like told the whole story. So I, it's, it's, it's public knowledge. Um, but yeah, it was like not fun. <laughs> I mean, it's, what's amazing is that you only did it that one time you had your four beers. It didn't last. It wasn't a bender or whatever. It didn't go for days or right. two days. It could have, if I was there alone without my family, right. In Hawaii, we had discipline. Like, yeah, it would have been a different story. I think but you had your, what did your wife say? I mean, it was, she was devastated. You know, she was devastated. She's like, I cannot, because my family sacrificed a lot for me to do these races and all these things. Like there was a, there was a price, you know, that, that, that everyone paid for me to be able to kind of do the things that created the foundation for what I get to do today. And that was, you know, really tough to walk through with her. It was an abuse of trust. It was scary for her, understandably, mm-hmm. you know, uh, she's like, oh my God, like you really are an alcoholic. Like, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really difficult. Did she know you when you were because no, you were no, no. 30, we, we've been married for what, 20 years or? Yeah, we've been together about 20 years. Yeah. So and you're 55. We've been we got, no, we've been together 22 years. Yeah. I'm almost 56. I met her when I had a year of sobriety. So she didn't yeah. even know, she didn't see you in those moments. No, she yeah. had never, she had never seen that. She didn't know me from before, but she knew me in early sobriety. Was the endurance kind of like you kind of, they, I've heard and they say that usually transfer one addiction for another. Was that like your, was exercise becoming your new addiction or like? 
Well, I think it can become that. You Did know, that, if you've got, a, if yeah. you got a, like ultra races, there's tons of fully tatted people who are like recovering heroin addicts. Like there's something about really? the endurance world and even more specifically the ultra endurance world that's very alluring for the recovering drug addict or alcoholic because it's an extreme. Like recovering right. addicts and alcoholics are, are by definition people who have you know have this magnetic magnetic attraction to the extreme to extreme experiences right and i think i mean listen people that i know and recover are some of the most remarkable people i've ever met and i think there's something about that that um that disposition that like that attraction to those extreme experiences that is about seeking you know it's about it's it, it it in a weird way. It's a spiritual quest to like, you know, see what's out there. Like, what is the truth of myself in the world? And drugs and alcohol are a very unhealthy way of trying to reckon with that or answer that question. Um, endurance sports are a healthier version of that. But yes, you can have a very addictive relationship with those pursuits. And I've I've been in that place. So it would be very easy for me to say, oh, well, you know alcohol was, you know, the unhealthy, you know, the unhealthy, uh, you know, version of this compulsion and like running and all these other things that I do, they make me a better person. And that's true, but I don't think it's totally, uh, I think it would be disingenuous to not acknowledge that like, yes, there is like, yeah, I like, I like me. I like that, you know, I like that. So it just means that I have to be much more aware and conscious of what that relationship looks like and where it sits in the pecking order of priorities in my life. And that relapse experience was a result of those priorities being out of whack, right? I had an unhealthy preoccupation with that pursuit at that time. And now for me, it's much more about, you know, joy and um, community. But I think in the early years when I was first starting to train, it wasn't like, okay, I become this, this endurance athlete in my 40s, I wasn't looking to like win races or be a competitive athlete. I was very confused about my life. I had put so much into being this lawyer. And then I had this, you know, reckoning with drugs and alcohol. Drugs and I, too? Well, a little bit, but it was really mostly, mostly almost entirely alcohol. Um, and I had 10 years of sobriety and I'd grown a lot, but I also wasn't really happy with this career path that I had chosen but really confused. I had invested so much in it. What else can I do? I don't know what else to do. I was having like an existential crisis. Yeah. I'm 40 years old, like 40 will do that. Like, what am I doing with my life? Like, totally. it's this feels wrong, but like, here I am. Like I, I, this, my whole life is based on this. Like, what am I going to do? And, um, and that kind of collided with this health scare that I had. I was 50 pounds overweight and just a lot of those addictive tendencies were then placed on food and I was an emotional eater and a kind of a fast food addict. And, you know, with that epiphany kind of made some serious lifestyle changes that revitalized me and energized me enough to like reconnect with the things that brought me joy as a young person, which is movement. Like I got back in the pool and I started running for the first time and, 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 and it really made me happy. And then the ultra endurance thing, like there's something about like being in an elevated heart rate state and a sense of, you know, um, like low grade discomfort over an extended period of time that really deeply connects you with the truth of who you are. Like you can't escape yourself. Like you have to reckon with it. And all that time alone on trails and on the bike, 
I needed that space to really meditate on my life and what I was doing and how am I going to answer these questions? And it was really soothing for that. Like it really helped me for, and it's not like here's the answer and this is what you need to do, but it felt, it felt like the way forward to me, like in a very, you know, kind of, um, way that would be difficult to describe in words, just like, this is, I know I'm supposed to do this and this feels right. And I feel like it's healing in some regard. And so that was, that was really why I was pursuing it. And it led to all these other things, but it was mostly like a spiritual quest. Like I don't have drugs and alcohol anymore. And yeah, I meditate and I eat right and do all these things. But like this thing, this thing is teaching me more about who I am and what I'm capable of than any other thing that I've found. So between 31 and 40, were you still a lawyer? Did you still practice? When did you quit yeah. law? I mean, I, I, so when I got, you know, like a couple of years into sobriety, I, I was like out of the big law firm thing. And then I was a solo practitioner. And then I had a, like, I would do little law firm stuff. Mm -hmm. I had a couple partners and then I went solo again. And then I had one partner and I was doing some fun stuff. Like I was an entertainment transactional lawyer working in like independent films and getting to work with cool artists on, and you know, on their projects and stuff like that. But I wasn't making very much money right, right. and I was getting more and more interested in these other things that I was doing this, you know, the ultra endurance and all of that. So it was a slow kind of phasing out of the law. Um, as I got more interested in these, in the, in these other pursuits, but that resulted in, you know, a pretty protracted, uh, uh, number of years of financial difficulty, like yeah, I was believing say, that yeah. this could lead to something else, even though that's somewhat delusional, like as a 40 plus year old person, like, <laughs> like you don't like, first of all, ultra endurance, there's like, you don't make money doing that. Like, forget it. Like, I, I don't know. All I knew was like, I need to keep doing this and this will like, like the universe will provide. And ultimately the universe did provide, it just didn't provide on my timeline. And it was really hard. We had cars repossessed and like went through, like we really? weathered like a lot of financial difficulty. That was, yeah, another like level of like humility and faith. Because you had, so you, because the only money you were making a little bit here and there was just doing some law on the side, but how did you like, so you just kind of took a, took a leap that this would work out for you? Sort of. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, I, I, I don't know that I would recommend it to anybody. <laughs> I mean, the truth is like, yeah, then I got this, like, there were a couple little like mileposts along the way, like, like CNN after I, I did well on Ultraman, I got some press, like there was, a, there was a little bit of press yeah. because, oh wait, this guy's like 44, 43 and he's like, killing it in these races and he doesn't eat animal products. Like, how does that work? Right. So people were curious You're about that story. You're a unicorn in that way. Yeah, I mean, now there's tons of plant-based athletes. and But at the time, I wasn't the only one. There were And there were athletes that are better than me in their respective but disciplines. Were they over 40 in doing it? Uh, who've never run, who've know. never done all Yeah, I mean, things? it was like, it was a, a unique assemblage of all of those little, and the addiction piece and all of that, that made Your for a story, story that people seemed interested in. Uh, including CNN. So like Sanjay Gupta came to my house and did a story. So I was like, like Sanjay, Gu like Sanjay Gupta is not coming to my house when I'm a lawyer. And then like I wrote a blog for like that. They're like, oh, this is cool. Why don't, you know, why don't you write a little thing about your story for CNN.com? And I did that and it got so much traffic. They put it on the homepage and it was like the number one shared story. So I was like, there's something here like, 
And then the response to that, like I just got flooded with emails and people telling me their story. It was very emotional. And I was like, there's something here. Like, I don't know how to like provide for my family with this, but it would feel like a betrayal to just go get a job, you know? Right, or and not pursue not, this. And I don't mean that in like a, a flippant way. Like, we, you know, I was trying my best to figure out ways to put food on the table and it was hard. And, you know, it's not like we ever starved or anything like that. Um, but we had to really cut back and we almost lost our house. And, you know, we paid a heavy price, that commitment to doing this. And it was really Julie. Like I had plenty of moments where my faith was beyond tested. And I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm going to go get a job. And Julie would be like, no, you can't. There's no way. Like we're in it, to, you know, for the long haul. Like I believe in you. Like this is this is your blueprint. Like this is we the the way the way out of this is through it like you have to just continue to pursue this so she was super supportive and you know and i would think like oh somebody will call and ask me to speak somewhere or something there wasn't it wasn't a lot <laughs> there were, you know and but ultimately i then i got the and then i got this book deal and i got a nice advance for a first time author but like advances are spread out like it take you know it was a two year period and tell me about it you know i've got yeah. a bunch of kids and it was like it doesn't come out to very much in the end so but it's like, okay, well, that maybe will set me up to do other things. And, you know, it was just every, it was like every day, like, okay, how are we going to get through today? Like, what do we have? What do we need? Um, and just really like surfing it. And I think the lesson in it beyond the faith piece was learning how to be, and Julie taught me this, how to be completely neutral, like, and not freak out. You know, I remember we had I, uh, the repo guy came to take my truck away oh <laughs> and and uh, and Julie like goes out into the yard and greets him and was like, hey, how's it going? Like, would you you want to come in? You want some tea? Like, let me make you like she was like and he was so freaked out because he's used to people losing their shit. No like, kidding. He, he has the worst job. Like he's going to come and take people's cars away. I mean, we knew we hadn't paid the thing in a while. Like, you know, it was inevitable. And what happened? Did he come and in like, for tea? He still took the car away. But I think there's, it's like, there was no denigration of dignity. It's like this, okay, this is happening, but this doesn't mean that I'm a bad person or, oh, wow. you know, there's no like hit to my self-esteem as a result of that because we're doing this other thing, you know? And she sounds I, I wish amazing. I could tell you that I could inhabit that. I was like losing my shit, right? She's like, no, like that you have control over how you respond to these external events. And you, you can either allow them oh. to rob you of your, you know, emotional tether, um, or you can handle that with, with grace. And, and I think there's something really amazing about that. This is your wife doing yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. Was she and, and it like, I think what we went through would have blown up most marriages, but it really brought us closer together. Did she work at all or do anything to make I mean, money? We were doing whatever we could to make money. Yeah. Little things here and there. And she would cook for yoga retreats and things like that. And, you know, we were able to just always kind of just make get it. by. Yeah. That is, that is unbelievable. The repo story is amazing. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. So then, then you did all the ultra stuff and then did you ever, like your book became a massive seller, right? Not really. I feel like it was a New York Times bestseller. No, it wasn't. 
it wasn't. It keeps like getting public. Like people keep saying it was a New York Times bestseller. It was not a New York Times bestseller. It came out in May of 2012. And like, like people in the endurance world, some of those people knew who I was, but I didn't have a big public profile. How did I know though? I wasn't an endurance athlete. I mean, did you know about it in 2012? I read, I, I think I knew about it in 2014, 15, mm. like seven years ago. Yeah. Like a like long so time ago. So it came out, it did fine um, when it first came out. And I did everything in my power. I knew like, I made like pushing that book out into the world like my job because I was like, this has to work because I have, I need to like, I'm trying to create this new exactly. life. I, I don't even know what it will be, but so I really, you know, worked overtime to like, I would do any radio interview and, and like, you know, I did as much media as would come my way for that. Um, and the book sold fine. How many uh, copies did it actually? I mean, up? out of the gate. No, and, and yeah, I, I mean, guess. early on, like, I don't know, maybe, I think it maybe sold like, like it had sold like 5,000 copies uh, oh. like in the first couple of weeks or something like but, that. Okay, to date or- it, And know. so what happened was it just slowly built like a word of mouth thing. And it like, now it's 10, it's 10 years later and it sells every year more than it did the year before. And that's the thing I'm most proud of. Like everybody wants to make the New York wow. Times bestseller list. I didn't make the New York Times bestseller list, but it's become a perennial bestseller and it can, and it's the podcast is a big part of that because the audience for that, you right. know, gets people interested in the other things that I've done. Um, but the fact that it's still being discovered, you know, so I don't know how many copies it's sold now, not like a million. I mean, it does good, you know, it's right. It's, it definitely it, does but, well, but I, I, that's why I thought it was a best yeah, New yeah. York times bestseller, but also with these ultra marathons and correct me if I'm wrong. Cause I follow a couple people, we have a mutual friend. And like when he does these ultra marathons or these hundred milers, there's like a caravan of people that are like caring for you. Mm -hmm. Like, isn't it expensive? Like to pay for these people sure. and the van and yeah. it looks like it's a whole production. Each person has like their own mini village following you through. Doesn't that cost yeah, I money? Mean, it, it, it depends on the type of event, um, but yeah, it can be. I mean, the Ultraman race that I've done is expensive. I mean, you get your buddies or you get people to volunteer to oh, prove okay. for you. It's not like you're paying. I mean, maybe people pay. Oh, I don't numbers, know. I would, like, could you have people like no, rubbing your feet like, and hey, doing all these things? It's, it's, it's a team sport. Like if you, you think it's people. an individual sport, it's not. Nobody, nobody, you know, can do those races without a lot of support. And in the case of Ultraman, yeah, they don't even like. So the Ultraman is a double Ironman race, which over the course of three days, you circumnavigate the entire big island of Hawaii. And each athlete, hold on. an ultra marathon is say that again. the ultra man. It's a, ultra it's man. a, it's a triathlon. It's a three day stage race triathlon. And over the course of the three days, you go all the way around the big Island of okay. Hawaii, and which is a big fucking it's Island. Huge. Yes. So, There's, so the, is that different than running a hundred mile run? This, well there, yeah. I mean, that would be an ultra marathon. An ultra marathon. This every race is different. So this specific race, which was like kind of the race that I specialized in. Okay. The first day is a 6.2 mile swim and a 90 mile bike. Oh, okay. And the second day is 171 miles on the bike. And the third day is a 52.4 mile run, a double marathon run. And, and, and it's a small race. There's only 35 individuals. And each competitor is responsible for bringing their own crew. So you typically have a van that kind of follows you. 
And in that van are two or three people and the van is filled with like ice and food and backup parts for your bike and like everything that you might need because you're, you're and you're sleeping in different places on those nights because you finish the day, you go to sleep, you wake up the next day, you start the next stage. And uh, it's really hard work. Like I have to navigate, make sure you don't make a wrong turn. Whoops. Oh my gosh. Um, oh, look what it is. Your our podcast. Oh, it's Darren. <laughs> you should answer it. <laughs> should answer I, it. Should I? Yeah. Darren, I'm doing a podcast with Rich Roll right now. We're in the middle We're of the, the middle podcast of and, and she didn't turn her <laughs> ringer off. I did turn it off. off. I don't know how this happened. Oh I'm putting you on speaker. Say hi. Say hi. Dude. <laughs> Literally in the middle of recording. We're literally recording it right now while you're yapping. I, I, I made an appearance. You did. You that is so funny. Okay, I'll call you after. Goodbye. Darren always stealing my fire. <laughs> How did that even happen? Oh my God, do you know who else just called me? Well, it was ringing before and I thought when they, the other person called, I pressed, I guess what I would have, I put the ringer on. Oh. It's Joe DeSena, your other oh, friend. Oh yeah. <laughs> Joe. Oh my God, that is too funny. Joe's okay, sign the money. He's yeah. crazy. So I thought he was crazy. You're just as crazy. He's crazy Joe's still. done. Joe is like, Joe's endurance resume is off the rails. Oh, it's, yeah. I, I, is, he, is he more intense than you? Oh, way more. Way more. Well, back then, I mean, yeah. maybe, maybe. I mean, he doesn't compete like he did, but he went on a streak where he was just a maniac and he did beyond. a lot of crazy shit. Yeah. But you're, I feel like you're the same. So, like, I feel like I'm a little more grounded, maybe. Maybe now you are. <laughs> yeah. Maybe now you are. Know. Because, well, the thing is also, you, like, you're, I think what makes you so unique is that, like, it's all the pieces put together, right? Like, it's the vegan part that was, like, at the time, even though you think mm -hmm. a lot of people are doing that. Not that many vegan yeah. ultramans out there, ultra winners. Like you never did it before. That's very inspirational. Like you're kind of like you're talking about those two guys on your podcast, those heroes that are very inspirational. That's what you represent, I think, to a lot of people because they think, well, this guy, you know, he he had he was an alcoholic and look what he did. He wasn't even a, a runner and look what he did. You know what I mean? So you provide so much inspiration, which is, I think, part of why you're successful because people really do look at you like that. And it's, and it's real. Like you actually did overcome it. It's not bullshit. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I appreciate that. Thanks. It's like, uh, I'm learning to just like say thank you when people say <laughs> well, nice things. Cause I want to like, my instinct is like to tell you all the reasons why that's wrong. But anyway, but the thing, I think the thing is it's, it's, uh, like I don't consider myself to be, particularly gifted or talented as an athlete, but I do, like I said earlier, like I know how to push myself. I know how to suffer. I know how to work. And, you know, endurance is a great, you know, vehicle for those traits. Like it for will sure. take you far. Um, but I, so I think, you know, if there's anything about the story, it's more aspirational than inspirational. Like Kobe Bryant is inspirational. Like you can't just be Kobe Bryant, but I think that because, you know, doing starting it at 40 and all of that, even though I have this background in swimming and there's other unique aspects of my story, again, it goes back to like, can you see some part of yourself in this person? And I think that's powerful. And that's why it's always important for me in the podcast to try to find examples of that for, for other people. Because, you know, I look to people like that um, when I was, you know, trying to figure all this stuff out and it was, you know, powerful. But you said to me that Kobe would be the first to tell you it was his 
grinding work ethic. Like he mm -hmm. did not stop. It wasn't right. So where, at what point is it talent versus just like your, in a, your ability, your ability just to push yourself and just keep on working. Well, of course it's always ethic. a combination of, of both of those things. But I think, what think what's important? great about, about like podcasts and things like that is when you get to hear somebody's full story, because we all look at, we look at people who are high achievers in whatever yeah. category. And you just think, well, they were, they came out of the womb that way. And when they tell their whole story, you realize like, oh, they're just humans like all of us, right? Like they did this and this happened to them and True. they made this decision and that's what led to that, et cetera. But Darren just interrupted because you were on a roll. You were talking yeah, I don't, about- what were we ta I don't even remember. You were talking about when you trained, well, first, I don't think you told me that. Oh, it's yet. about the crewing thing. About the crewing yeah, of yeah, your yeah. Ultraman and like how you were like, how you have to have a truck and you have ice and food and people and health yeah, and, and they're that. like feeding you and like you know uh making sure that you're you're eating because you, you don't want to eat like you get in these weird you know like is he healthy what does this person need it's like it's a full-on it's a very intense job and so to be a crew member for any ultra marathon race or any of these things is a very selfless act and it's kind of part of the mm. beautiful ethos of those communities like you're not getting into ultra marathoning like it's you have to do it because you love doing it. It's a very grassroots, like community-based kind of uh, culture, subculture. Um, and and part of that is like, oh, if you, you know, if you um, have participated in a race, then it's sort of expected that at some point you're gonna give back and crew for somebody else. Like I'm going back to Ultraman in a couple, or in November to crew for another guy. Like you I've never are. crewed the race and I feel like, you know, not only am I friends with the guy who's going to be competing, but like, yeah, I should crew. Like that race gave me so much, like I need to give back, you know, and that's part of that, you know, that whole, the spirit of that whole kind of world. Would you be able to do one now? Would you train right for now? One? Like not no. the second, like not, no, in your, no, no, no. not in your Birkenstock, but no. I mean, like if you trained for one, would you be able to do something? Cause I don't know, maybe, I mean, the last, memory. the last big race I did was in 2017 in Sweden, but what was that? No. That was the Otillo Swim Run World Championships, which is like this crazy race where you, um, it's a 70, I think it's 70 kilometers, uh, and it takes place in the archipelago of islands off the coast of Stockholm. And what you do is you swim and run across this string of islands, um, like all day long. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're traversing, I think like, 35, 30 plus islands. So, and you do the whole thing in a, in like a modified wetsuit with your running shoes on. So you're swimming with your shoes on and then you're climbing up these rocks and running across these islands in your wetsuit. And then you're jumping back in the freezing water and doing all day. So it's pretty cool. Actually, it's a pretty cool race. Oh, and so what happened in it? Did you do well in it? Did so, they? I mean, I did fine. We were like middle of the pack you do and you do it in teams of two. So you do it as a tandem and Who's you're not allowed guy? to be more than like, I think three meters separated from your partner at any time. And I did it with my coach. Oh herself. my gosh. Yeah. Which is cool. So, but that was, so that was five years ago. I mean, the thing is, the truth is, could I? Um, yeah, I could, but it's really you more about to. like, is that where I want to invest my time and energy? And is that the best use of my time and energy? And right now, it really isn't. Like, I, I get out and train pretty much every day. What do you do now? But, your, I mean, I swim and run and bike. You know, I've got some lower back stuff that I'm working through. But, I, you know, I stay connected to it. But, you know, for me, 
the, 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 the motivation is like, what am I doing today that can have the most meaningful, positive impact on other people? Every once in a while, doing a race serves that. Like it's cool, like to be like, I'm gonna be 56. Like if I can go out and do something crazy, like that shows people like that you should recalibrate your relationship with age, et cetera. But in truth, on a daily basis, like I've got teenagers and they need my attention and I'm running this business and, you know, I can host a podcast and reach hundreds of thousands of people with something very meaningful, or I can be out on my bike all day training. And that sort of feels indulgent to me at this point. So it's not a function of whether I can or can't, it's whether it's the right choice. I for, totally understand yeah. that. So does that mean, what is the trait? Can you tell me what, what is the training schedule when you are training so we get an idea of how rigorous it really is? I mean, it depends on what your goal is. Like if you want to just finish or you want to like be competitive. Like you, what did you do? I mean, when I was at the peak of that, you know, really doing it, it got to, I think about 25, 26 hours a week. So it's kind of like a job, you know? And then when you're not doing it, you're recovering and you're doing all this other stuff outside of the actual training itself to set you up for success. You got to get the sleep and the nutrition. And, and it's like, you're just thinking about it and doing it kind of all the time. But you're doing- And then you're exhausted all the, you're really tired a lot, you know? So you don't have as much energy for other things in your life that are important. So it's not a sustainable, it's not, it's not, it's not a sustainable model for living. It's okay. And like, I'm not a big proponent of like balance, like living a balanced life. Yeah, like that's, I'm not like crazy about that whole conversation. Um, but the truth is like, you know, you have to make sure that the, that the values that are important to you in life are always being serviced. Maybe not in, you know, strict proportion every single day, but you know, over the, over, you know, a period of months or whatever, like those things have to be tended to like anything else. And right. so if you're going to be out of balance because you're hyper-focused on achieving a goal or something like that, that pendulum has to swing back to neutral or to the other side at some point. And at this phase of my life, like it doesn't feel like the right decision for me to be out of, out of whack in that way. Did, so you train though in low intensity the whole time, right? Because that's really a lot of like aerobic training. Yeah. The more fit you are though, like that, that like lower heart rate zone training becomes, it becomes more strenuous than you think when you start out, it isn't, um, it's definitely, you know, it adds up. You probably have to like kind of hold yourself back from going faster or doing more, right? Cause it's harder sometimes at the beginning. At the beginning, that, right? yeah. At the beginning. There's a whole education like about like how to do that correctly. I, it's, and I think a lot of people like, I, I feel like there's a cool conversation happening around that right now, but I think most people who are time crunched and just want to be fit and go out and run or ride their bike or whatever, they're either going too hard mm -hmm. to develop their aerobic capacity and improve that kind of foundation upon which true fitness and performance is built, but they're not going hard enough to really um, develop the strength and the speed and the acceleration that an anaerobic athlete requires. So for ultra endurance, you're going to spend most of your time in that lower Z1, Z2 heart rate zone, um, and then choose your tempo moments judiciously. But most of it is in, yeah, kind of like that more, um, conversational pace of exertion. So would that mean would, I think, I think when was it your friend? Was that Peter Atia who talks all about mm. this mitochondrial 
yeah density density yes and like fat for fuel and all that but um would you say what would be a pace that you would run at would it be like a five i'm just trying to think of like treadmill to you know do you ever ever run on a treadmill or god forbid not very often i mean i think the way i would say it is this so like zone two is like the zone in which uh or a pace at which you are really cultivating your body's ability to um, use uh, fat as fuel. Mm -hmm. And that is an energy source that is inexhaustible. Um, Most people though, when they first start doing this, will realize that any exertion whatsoever will exceed their zone two capacity. And they get frustrated because it takes a long time to really broaden and develop that zone to uh, uh, kind of um, pace into uh, the foundation upon which like the house of endurance is built. It could take years, like you need a multi-year plan. So for example, when I first got into this stuff, my zone two uh, like heart rate zone would be like 135 to 145. So my heart rate could not exceed 145 beats per minute Otherwise I'm getting into zone three and beyond. And at that time, I don't think I could run faster than 10 minutes per mile Mm -hmm. without going overboard. But at my peak fitness, I could run 715 pace without going over the 145 heart rate. So you get faster by going slower is the most simplistic way of explaining it. Um, That's because you so get, fast. And the, because what happens when you develop that zone two capacity is you are developing uh, a tremendous efficiency in that particular movement. And that efficiency is born out of wow. um, uh, a greater mitochondrial density, your ability to metabolize fat for fuel and utilize oxygen to its maximum effect. Okay, but that's like you're running, that's fast to run at the seven minute mile. Right, so when you look at like Elliot Kipchoge, you just broke the world record for the marathon in Berlin the other yeah. week. Some crazy percentage of his training is done in zone one and zone two. Something like 77% of his training is done at that very low intensity pace. But Elliot, Elliot Kipchoge can probably run like 545 miles at like a really low heart rate. So you think, oh, you think he's out walking. Like, no, but he's so good. So when you get to the elite level, like their zone two is faster than, you know, 99.9% of people can can run at max capacity. Oh my God. Who's that other guy, Dean? What's his last name, Dean? Karnazes. Yeah, what is he? Mm -hmm. Is he an ultra man? Yeah, he was the guy responsible for really popularizing ultra marathons because he wrote a book called ultra marathon man right and that was the first time anyone had kind of mainstreamed this weird subculture of people uh who were running crazy distances because at the time people just thought well marathon is the ultimate distance nobody can run further than that yeah he wrote this book about like these hundred mile plus races and it blew everyone's mind and and really i think you know created an intrigue around that world because even when i started like you know, you go these ultra marathons, like it's just like a bunch of people camping in a tent the night before, and then they go do the race for fun and eat granola and have a beer. (laughs) And now like they sell out and there's like, you know, there's like, there's like big races with crowds of people and like a lot of live stream coverage and stuff like that, that, 
you know, is pretty new, but it all began with like Dean's book. That is, so you're, but you're not an ultra marathoner. You're an ultra like triathlete. Yeah. Like more of a, like a multi-sport. Multi-sport. Yeah. But you, did you ever do an ultra marathon? Not just, no, Th- like everything I've running. done have been multi-sport things. I mean, an Ultraman, the third day is a 52 mile run. Right. Which is so, no joke. Yeah. Obviously. But I've never done a hundred mile run. So like, so today, like in today's, like, you know, fast forwarding, what's your day like? Like your day in the life now, like how how many hours do you work out? Do you only work out like every day? Is it what do you eat? Yeah, I mean today I was going to get up and run, and Julie had uh, wasn't feeling well. She had a sore throat, mm-hmm. and so I was like, my workout went out the window, and I had to get my kid ready for school, and you know, all make breakfast and do all of that. So. You know, it's like, I don't always... Did you go after the breakfast or... Well, then I had to go get a bunch of stuff done and then I had to come and see you. So we'll see, like maybe after this, I'll figure something out. But like, yeah. So typically though, it would, you know, I try to get out for a couple hours every morning and morning is like when I like to train. And two hours, you said? like Yeah, I mean, during the week. And then on the weekends, I'll do like a longer ride and a longer run. But when you say like two, you do two hours of uh, running or you split it up into different things? I mean, right now I haven't been running very much because lower back stuff. I'm just starting to get kind of back into it. So if I was running right now, I'd probably go out for an hour, like a zone two run. And I would go out on my bike for probably, I don't know, two hours. You don't, you don't split it up. Like I'll do an hour now, then I'll do an hour <clears> later. No, cause I got to get it done. And then like I have, other, I've got to like get to work and do, you know like what everyone else has to do like yeah like like the bills paid (laughs) exactly then do you like what what about supplementation food like give me like what do you eat now i know obviously you're a vegan but yeah i mean i'm whole food plant-based so uh that means that i try to eat you know i eat i eat entirely plant-based diet but i try to eat um uh you know, whole foods close to their natural state. So not a big fan of like a lot of the processed foods that are out there. Right. When you say vegan, it could mean potato chips and Oreos, you know, That's it's, it's like a big true. difference from like eating a, eating a, you know, like a whole food plant-based diet. And I think it's, it's interesting. Like when I first started eating a plant-based diet, there weren't a lot of all, you know, like meat and dairy analog foods and the ones that did exist didn't taste good anyway. So, you know, I came up like learning how to like make really healthy stuff and make that like, you know, the foundation of, of like my what? nutrition. Tell me some examples um, because I find it very, the pro- I know you're going to say you don't need as much protein as people think and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But what do you do for protein? Why do you care? Why is that important to you? What you do? What, for what do you, what, what's behind that question? Of which part? Of the protein part? Yeah. Like why is the leading question about protein? I was going to say, I feel like that's what the first question every vegan will get from a person who's not vegan. Like, what do you right. do about protein? I think it's like a, it's become like kind of synonymous with uh, just I'm a vegan. Like, doesn't everybody mm-hmm. ask you what do you do about protein? Right. And why do you think they ask that question? Because we're so used to eating so much. Like, for example, um, I don't feel satiated unless I have, quote unquote, like protein, real protein. In my opinion, what's real protein? I, I, I knew that was. Yeah. I knew you were going to say that. Um, like fish, I'm not a big meat eater at all, but I do eat a lot of fish, eggs, stuff like that. That I feel is like a complete protein, and I don't feel like broccoli or, um, I don't feel like I get enough protein from just having. I guess you can combine. Why right? is this important? Why is protein? Why? Why? I, I, I feel it's important because I think it's number one. It's what people I've been trained to believe, 
But I do feel that if I don't eat, like I, I'm, I, I work out also a lot, mm. but if I don't, if I don't eat enough protein, I get nauseous. And if I'm working out and it's like a heavy day of working out or moving a lot, I do feel a difference. And so mm -hmm. if I have like a, an egg, let's say eggs or salmon or whatever, it does give me that spike that I feel like that I need to be, feel satiated. And what, what does protein do? What is the purpose of protein? Protein is to help build muscle and to make you feel, I mean, it's, it's, it helps. It's like a, I feel Whose podcast is this anyway? <laughs> yeah. I just feel that I feel that it's um, something that's essential to my diet in order to feel satiated, to help build lean muscle, to feel all, all the different, um, you know, minerals and vitamins that are in some of these things that maybe you're not necessarily getting in a vegan Right. Well, diet. vitamins and minerals are not protein. I but, know but that. Me, right, I so, feel solely. And I, I'll take this. I'll uh, one last question and then I'll answer. <laughs> okay. 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 Um, what is protein? Amino acids. Right. So protein is, uh, is, is built on amino acids, right? Um, there are a number of amino acids, something like, well, how many are there? So many. 13, I think. I think. Oh, no, there's more than that. No, I should more. know. There's like, I, I think know. there's uh, 28, 27, something like that. You can look can it check. up. Should I check? Okay. Right. I'll check. 20 amino acids. Okay. The majority of these amino acids can be synthesized by the body itself. The essential amino acids are called essential amino acids because we cannot synthesize them ourselves. We need to get them externally. We get them from the right. foods that we eat. Um, amino acids are the building blocks of protein and amino acids <laughs> proliferate in every food that we eat. So it's not that we need protein to build muscle mass. We need an assemblage of amino acids. When we eat the protein, we break it down into those amino acids anyway, mm -hmm. right? Plant foods, just like any food, have amino acids in them. Everything has amino acids in them. Um, and I've just found that uh, this weird uh, emphasis on protein is just highly misplaced, this obsession, it's with, an protein, obsession with protein, this idea sure. that has been pushed by um, you know, food company marketing departments that have us believing that, you know, if we don't have a protein smoothie upon waking in the morning, that we're not going to be able to breathe air into our yes. lungs. And I've just never heard of anyone going to the doctor because they have a protein deficiency. 100%. Like it's not a thing. It's, it's not, not a thing. And that's not to say that protein isn't important. It's super important. Right. And as an athlete, like, I want to make sure that I'm meeting my body's protein needs. And all I can tell you from many, many years of experience and pushing myself to places most people, you know, never will, is that I've never had a problem building lean muscle mass, recovering from difficult workouts and being strong. And I'm turning 56 and I'm at an age now where protein intake actually becomes more important as you age yeah. and, you know, like sort of muscle denigration becomes more of a thing. So I'm probably more conscious of it now than I was when I was doing all these crazy races, but it's really just never been an issue. And the fact that people are so obsessed with it is kind of hilarious and confusing to me, particularly in light of the fact that um, we never talk about fiber. 
people are not protein deficient. Most people are eating too much protein. Right, people are eating of, too much yeah, protein. Like we, you know, there's so much meat and dairy in our, and you know, most people's plates three times a day. Um, and actually something, some crazy percentage of people, like between 70 and 90% of people are highly fiber deficient, which is impairing their gut microbiome and yep. making it more difficult for their body to absorb micronutrients, et cetera. There's a whole cascade of like negative deleterious effects because of our our fiber deficiency yeah. but nobody's like where do you get your fiber or nobody's who's telling the carnivore people like where are you getting your oh, fiber like not. whatever so anyway let me just finish this thought like um by grazing on a variety of plant foods and i think variety is really important also for the fiber reasons totally. and, and the like um you know, I am able to not only meet, but exceed, especially when I'm training, like my dietary protein needs. And it's never impacted like any kind of gains. Like I still, if I go into the gym right now, I've been, I've been plant-based for 15 years. Like I'll put on muscle mass pretty quickly, you know? And I just think that we spend a lot of time thinking about protein and obsessing on protein when there's much more important, like relevant sort of nutritional questions that we should be grappling with. I get what you're saying. I think it's also a programming thing, right? It's also how you were raised. Like, I, you know, I was always raised with like, I'm Jewish. We're always having so much food in front of us, mm. but like you have to have your like, chicken or but I, I'm, I'm more about the, I think that I'm psychologically trained to not, to maybe think that I'm not satiated or or maybe i'm like i'm nutrient uh i i'm i'm not properly i don't have the proper nutrients if i don't have the right amount of protein whatever that amount would be but that's why i'm actually very curious about people who are vegan because darren you have a lot of friends actually mm -hmm. who are, look how fit darren is i know it's insane and he eats the cleanest diet of anybody i know and the guy is just ridiculously jacked he is ridiculous but that's also a lot of this is genetic so and he, he doesn't he doesn't work like he works out every day but he's not like in the gym all day oh long. no he's not he's 100 he, yeah. true he's like he works out for like 30 minutes like he's I know. moves rocks around a little yeah. bit he used to do this thing i'm sure you did too with the he does the well at laird hamilton's were you doing that whole thing with them mm -hmm. i went there a few times with not with darren to do that xbt stuff i did not love it did you like that i like it i still go up you there you still go all yeah, the time yeah. do you go in the pool and, and lift the weights yeah. and do all mm -hmm. that um are you a big sauna person and cold plunge person i have a cold plunge at home i don't have a sauna yet but i do enjoy that yeah. you do that okay mm -hmm. But my, my, I guess my point is a lot of it's genetics. Like Darren looks that way, maybe because Darren already ha is genetically conditioned to have that. Yeah, but body. look at look at look at Darren's brother. Look at That's you know, it's, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. you know, he he is a positive product of his lifestyle, yeah. and that guy walks his talk he as does. much as anybody you will ever meet. The most, I totally agree. But so do you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think I have like some constraints that Darren doesn't have with like kids and all kinds of yes. other stuff that make it a little bit different. I mean, we're a little bit different in that regard, but the point being like, you know, Darren is not being limited by 
the fact that he doesn't consume animal protein. A hundred percent not. That's the point. He's exactly. <laughs> yeah. And he's, oh, he's eating more barucas than anybody yeah. I know. But okay. So give me that, what you eat. Like, give me it. What, how do you eat your, what, do you eat breakfast or you're in, I do like not. I mean, so, fast? you know, sometimes I just, I get up, I have a little coffee and I'm out the door and I train, uh, when I can. And I don't have like, you know, kid stuff in the morning. Um, when I'm, uh, feeling hungry, like I'll, the, the best way that I found to start my day is with a green smoothie, Vitamix smoothie. And that often depends on what's in the fridge because we have six oh. people living in our house. So <laughs> I never know what's going to be in there when I open it up, but generally or typically begins with dark leafy greens, kale, spinach, stuff like that. Beets and beet greens, super important. Also, endurance boosting. I love beets. Oh, you put in beets in your in your smoothie. Is and it for your oxygen intake? No. It 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 enhances your body's ability to yeah up to uptake oxygen. Yeah. Like so, it's really good for endurance sports. Um, you know, dark berries, blueberries, blackberries, high in antioxidants. Yeah. Uh, chia seeds, flax seeds, hemp seeds for omega threes. Maybe some coconut water. Uh, what else would typically go in there? Maybe some pineapple. I don't know. A banana. Some fruit, banana. Yeah, of course. And like either I'll drink that whole thing or I'll drink like part of it and then I'll thermos the rest and take it with me through the day. And anytime I feel a hunger pang or whatever, I just hit it. And that just kind of keeps my energy really high throughout the day. Uh, lunch, I eat pretty light during the day. So salad is usually what I go to in the middle of the day. Do and you then cook? Dinner. Oh. Julie's the cook. Yeah. Okay. She's an amazing cook. So you're so lucky. I know you have yeah, some cookbooks yeah. because it's you you're you're having an easy way of having a vegan lifestyle. If I had someone like Julie in my life, I'd be a vegan all day. But I don't unfortunately. And I think that makes a big difference. But do you think that it takes longer to prepare a plant-based meal than it does for you to cook your salmon and to, whatever it else is? To feel satiated. Cuz what what happened is I would I would end up eating way too many carbs. I wouldn't have a balance, a proper balanced diet because I'm always moving and rushing. People like Julie, they know how to comp, like do like all these combinations, and they know how to make these. I like, think you're. you're I think you're projecting that. Maybe yeah. I don't know. It, <laughs> yeah. does, it does sound like she's an amazing cook, though. <laughs> she I'll is an you. amazing cook, but like also everything that she does and all the recipes in her cookbook are like really easy to make. It's all about like oh, is it? Because like okay. we're busy. She's yeah. got a startup. She's doing a million things. Like. Everything that she does is stuff she can whip up in like 10 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Like she'll, she has a couple like more elaborate things. Like if you, or if you're making her cheese and stuff like that, that's a whole different thing. But for the most part, like I would say the vast majority of her recipes and the way that she cooks is like very fast and fluid. Really? I should get yeah. the cookbook. So there is this, that's another myth. Like if you're going to be plant-based, oh, you got to like prep everything and like it's a million ingredients and uh, you know, you got to like batch and prepare meals for the week. And like, I don't know, maybe the, I'm sure there's people that do that. Like yeah. that is not our lifestyle at all. So you're right, because with Darren, he has the same bowl. Of, uh, he puts the barucas and the, shakeo the, the shakeology, mixes it all. doesn't sound very fancy, but you need a lot of ingredients. Like even the salads, you put tons of different vegetables. You got to have a lot in your fridge at a given time. I don't know. Do you? I feel. Would you have for, okay, what do you put in your salad? Like I think it's really more of like, like I make a giant salad. Like even if I just, just spinach, kale, and, you know, some balsamic. And if I have, 
you know, I'll just shave some carrots in it or, you know, I'll put some lentils in there. Like, like at Trader lentils. Joe's, you can get pre-cooked lentils. Just crack them open, put them in there. Yeah. There's your protein. It's true. I love you that, You can actually. do, you know, like there's there's a lot of like kind of simple like end run hacky kind of things that you can do that make it easy. Like I'm freaking busy. Like I'm not in the kitchen like spending all kinds of time. Like everything <laughs> is like this, you know. That's good to know. So, and, you, you know, for the most chef. part, if you're eating, the more you're eating these foods close to the natural state, the more your diet is like a pauper diet. It's not an expensive diet. Like, yeah, you can get fancy with right. the chia seeds and the superfoods and all that kind of stuff. But the truth of the matter is that the, be the bread and butter of like what I eat is like beans and lentils and greens. And, you know, yeah, um, I'm not like, you know, I, I, I don't eat a low carb diet. So like, you know, brown rice and. A lot of quinoa, which actually quinoa can be, be a, a, yeah. a stand-in for rice, and you do that with beans. and And I eat a lot, so it's like on do the you? satiation point, I eat huge amounts of food, huge amounts of I'd food. I love to know that because and so you mean. reach your satiation point because these foods are like more nutritionally dense and they're they're so high in fiber that you do get filled up. Like I'm not, you know, I don't go to the fancy you know, eat the tiny little. No yeah. way. Like I eat shitloads of food. Like I'm hungry. I, do so, I, are you hungry? I can give you a snack. No, it's fine. I ate before I came <laughs> here. But what I'm saying is like, oh, yeah, I never feel full. I never feel like if I'm eating plant-based, I'm going to be starving all the time. Like you're not eating enough then. You're right. You're not eating it. Would you have So for dinner, what do you have for dinner? The same um, thing? You know, lots of, I mean, I eat a lot of like, you know, like, I, like for me, I could eat like a giant bowl of like rice and beans and guacamole with like hot sauce. Every yeah, day, you yeah know, that's like, your big thing. Or quinoa like or something like that or lentils or um what else uh you know i like a lot of the um bean pastas like mung bean pasta yes. and things like that. actually like very high in protein um and so you you can have that pasta you yeah. know feeling of eating dinner which is and they're actually quite low carb and high in protein like so you get your protein fix you also feel full when you eat something like that that would be a go-to um do you eat fruit? A lot of fruit? Yeah. I, I, I'm not afraid of fruit. Yeah, no. I eat lots of fruit. You love being afraid mm -hmm. of fruit. And then I snack on like, like in my car, I just have um, like Brazil nuts or Baruca nuts, you oh, know, nice Darren nuts. keeps me stocked yeah. in Barucas. <laughs> um, a lot of pumpkin seeds for the iron, yeah. which when you eat with citrus is like, you know, good for keeping your ferritin levels. Oh, so where they should be. Yeah, tell me some more stuff like that. I mean, this this when you combine citrus with a with a food high in non-heme iron, which is the variety of iron in plant-based foods, uh, the citrus helps with the absorption, basically. Oh, wow, you and must be you're also supposed to avoid um, caffeinated drinks like the tannins in tea and coffee can interfere with that as well when you're trying to like eat for your iron. Now you said you have coffee, so you're not afraid of coffee. You do drink coffee. Yeah, in the morning, I try not to drink it. I'll just keep it to one cup because I can get addictive with that. Yeah, and I've been off it and I've been on it, and like you know, I, I think a cup of coffee in the morning is fine. So one cup of coffee. Like a, I'm not like extreme with it. So okay, so then that's how you eat. I feel like I've covered every. Can I just look at my little my little yeah, thing? I haven't even opened this yet. I talked about your vegan, the trading for Ultraman. I love that lower companions, by the way. That's such a wonderful mm. word. I've never heard that. Um, I think we're, I think, I think we're good here. Did we do it? I think right. we did it. I, cool. I have no idea how long you've been on this walk. Probably like two know. hours. Yeah. Almost, yeah. 
Oh my God, I'm so cool. sorry. I kept no, it forever. It's great. Yeah, it's super fun. You're amazing. I, I, first of all, I love your, your, I love your podcast. I love your story. Mm. I, I've heard just amazing things from Darren. So I'm so happy that I actually got a chance to actually sit down with you finally. So I appreciate this. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to no, talk to you. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Where do people find? Yeah. Well, I mean, Rich, if, if anyone does not know Ritual and Living mm. Under a Rock, his podcast is incredible. He is the best interviewer. He's so thoughtful. He listens. You don't interrupt people, which I find to be very. Sometimes I do. Not really. Like I said, if they're going off the rails. Then you, you maybe know, like, have to yeah, gear them back yeah. on. But overall, I think it's just, I think you do a great job. Mm, thank you. You're Appreciate welcome. that. Habits and hustle, time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind, don't stop, keep it going. Habits and hustle, from nothing into something. All out, hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries, tune in, you can get to know them. Be inspired, this is your moment. Excuses, we ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle Podcast, powered by Habit Nest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.